I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. I'm taking a little different approach on Communion Sundays. Uh, We'll see how it works. I'm anticipating doing this regularly. Uh, Often when you're doing a series of sermons like I do, uh, as we go through the book of Acts, there's a lot you want to say, and I find that we sometimes uh, come to the end of the service and I've preached a little longer than I, I should have, and, and the Lord's Supper gets tacked onto the end. I don't want to do that. I, wanna, I want us to celebrate the Lord's Supper because it is a sacrament of the church and uh, very important for us, and I don't want to give it uh, short shrift in the service. So we're going to go back to a little uh, part of... Jesus, uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost and where we are going to focus on Christ and the cross as he highlights it to the people to whom he was preaching. Acts 2.22, hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, the other night my brother texted me a picture and said, Remember this. And it was a a picture of a particular Christmas decoration that belonged to my parents, and it is obviously very old uh, because it is an ashtray with a picture of Santa Claus winking on it. And this was uh, obviously before the time where there was a stigma attached to smoking and people weren't uh, all that uh, uh, knowledgeable about the health risks associated. Needless to say, though, it, uh, even though the, maybe the subject matter of the picture was not all that inspiring, it did bring back uh, a few memories. Now, I don't remember my, my parents ever smoking and leaving ashes in this ashtray. It was always a decorative piece that was put out at Christmas. But it reminded me of Christmas's past when I was a child and uh, lots of wonderful, good memories about those days. Well, we are called in, in this Advent season, the Christmas season, to remember the birth of Christ uh, and and all the significance of that. And we are called today, as we come to the Lord's table, to do this, to participate in the Lord's table, in remembrance of Christ. Remembering Christ is very important to the Christian. And uh, it's uh, really amazing as you go through the Bible to see how many times uh, God tells us to remember to remember him, to remember Christ, to remember certain things. Well, in this passage before us today, uh, Peter is preaching to the crowd uh, on the day of Pentecost. They uh, are wondering about all these signs and wonders that are happening with the people as they speak in tongues, and the people are hearing about Christ in their own language, and some people are saying, oh, these people are drunk. And so Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd. And what we've read this morning is just a a snippet of that speech that Peter made on that day. And Peter is making, in what we've read, a, a couple of points 
First, he says that Jesus was a man attested or approved by God. What he's saying is that Jesus was proven to be all that he claimed to be by the mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him. Indeed, he was himself God in the flesh. He was the Son of God and Savior of the world, of whom God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. His miracles, Peter is saying, attested to this fact. They approved Jesus. They guaranteed that what he was claiming and saying was true. He was from God. He was God. If we look at the brief portion of his life recorded for us in the Gospels, uh, we can see how time and again he was attested. And this was just uh, a small bit of what Christ did. The Gospels, of course, give us all the information we need to know about Jesus, but as John tells us, the very last uh, verse of the Gospel of John, uh, now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I mean, the world wouldn't be able to contain all the books that would be written if everything about Jesus was written down. Now, Maybe that was an exaggeration or hyperbole. I don't know. But I suspect that it might be true because I understand human comprehension of the person of Jesus Christ is very limited. How long would it take to plumb the depths of the person and character of Jesus Christ? An eternity, surely. And we will have that opportunity for those who are Christ's. But in the Gospels there, we read of all the signs and wonders that Jesus did. Jesus healed the blind and the lame, the demon-possessed, people with various illnesses and diseases. He turned water into wine. He multiplied bread and fish for massive crowds. He walked on water. He stilled storms with just a word. God did these things through him, Peter says, in their midst, the people to whom he's speaking. Peter says, and he was adding to that fact, as you yourselves know, you know, there was no mistaking it, you know what Jesus did, you know what his life was like. These very people to whom Peter is speaking were witnesses of these mighty works and wonders and signs. And there was no denying to those people that he was attested or approved by God. Nothing like what Jesus did had ever been seen on earth, ever. Nor would it be seen again, because God himself took on human flesh and walked the earth and did amazing miracles. However, just weeks before Peter delivered this address, it would seem that this Jesus, who was attested and approved by God, was suddenly abandoned by God. More than that, cursed even by God when he was crucified on the cross. None of those people who were present on that day when Peter was speaking at Pentecost or those people who were present at the crucifixion of Christ could have any other 
opinion or understanding of what Jesus was going through other than he has been abandoned by God. He is someone who is cursed because he is being crucified. Crucifixion was a shameful, dishonorable, cursed way to die. If you were a free person, you know, an upstanding citizen, then you would not be executed in this way. Crucifixion was a capital punishment reserved for the lowest people in society. Crucifixion was a demonstration of the shamefulness of the person being crucified. They, they hung between heaven and earth, implying that the person is so dishonorable, base, and vile that he did not deserve to walk on the earth or touch the surface of the ground anymore. They were commanded, of course, to bury the body of the crucified before the sun went down that very day. And that implied that, that uh, this crucified person was such an abominable sight that he must be removed as soon as possible. Don't even lay him on the ground to touch the ground. Bury him so we can't see him anymore. He's shameful. Remove him from the eyes of people as soon as possible. Well, Peter reaffirms to his audience that Jesus was executed by crucifixion. He says, you killed and crucified him, this Jesus. But why? Why did Jesus, who was approved and attested by God, all of a sudden become seemingly cursed and abandoned by God? Well, verse 23 tells us why. Peter states that Jesus was Quote, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's definite plan that Jesus come to earth and be crucified for sinful people to save them from sin and death. Now the word definite there uh, is a, a Greek, comes from the Greek word from which we get our word horizon. It's orizo. And horizon, you know, of course, is the, the limit or the boundary of what we can see. You can't see beyond the horizon. And it's a, it's a definition of what you can see, the horizon. This word is used in the sense that God has a defined, very specific plan to save us from our sins. It involved sending his son into the world to execute the plan. And it tells us there that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God had foreknowledge of it, which means to know beforehand. Of course he did, because he planned it. He planned it to happen this way. It couldn't happen any other way, because he is God and he formulated the plan, and the Son agreed to carry it out. Hebrews 12.2 tells us something very interesting. It says, it tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. We just said that crucifixion is a shameful thing. He said yes to the Father's plan of going to the cross, to Endure the pain and suffering of death by crucifixion. 
The shame of it was no barrier to him from carrying out the Father's plan. He despised the shame. He didn't care about the shame on the cross. Why? Because of the joy set before him. The shame was no big deal compared to the joy of saving people from the shame and curse of sin. Therefore, in Acts 2.24, it says, God raised him up. See, yes, abandoned by God for a brief time on the cross. But God affirms again, approves, and attests of what Christ has done by raising him from the dead. It was not possible for him to be held by it because he was perfect in every way and he had executed the Father's plan and been obedient to God's will. Well, if it was God's son, uh, God's plan to send his son to be crucified for sinners, as I'm s- saying, as Peter was telling his audience, if this is true, then there are a number of points that we can infer from this. And I want to offer just two of those, two statements of inference to you today. And I want to add that they are very great understatements. And the first one is this. God's love is very great. We can infer from that. If God, if it was his plan to send his son to be crucified for sinners, then God's love is very great. Now, very great is, uh, is lame. That's a lame, they're, 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 that's an understatement. God's love as the song we like to sing, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. I mean, that's a great statement of the love of God. But as Paul says, nobody can know the depth of it, of God's love or the width, breadth, or height of it. It is beyond comprehension. So just to say God's love is very great, that sells it short because God's love is even greater than very great. John 3.16, of course. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He gave His only Son according to His definite plan that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now that's a verse that, that no doubt everyone is familiar with. But we need to understand that the word so there, for God so loved the world, that's not an intensifier. You know, it's not like a high school girl who's saying about her boyfriend, oh, I love him so much. That's not what John is uh, recording for us here. So loved means so or in this manner. Uh, God loved the world so, like this. Or God loved the world in this way. How? He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, God does love the world so much. But what this is saying is that God isn't simply saying, I love you. He is showing, I love you. As the saying goes, He's not just talking the talk, He's walking the walk. He loves you so much that He would send His Son into the world to suffer 
a slow, violent, painful, torturous, shameful, dishonorable, cursed, and comfortless death so that you would not have to because it is what you deserve. You deserve this kind of death. But God made plans to provide a way for you not to be justly condemned, but to have life, eternal life. John says it a different way, the same thing in a different way, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how God showed his love to us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. That's what God did for us. That's what he did for us because he loved us so much. And you think about that as we use this inference, the, if God has a plan to send his son to be crucified for us, then that tells us that his love for us is very great. Why do we push him aside? Why do we not accept this great love and put our trust in Christ? John goes on to tell us that light has come into the world. Jesus, he is the light of the world. He's come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. To spurn this wonderful, indescribable love of God demonstrated in Jesus is to love darkness rather than light. And that friends, is a foolish decision. Well, that's the first understatement. God's love is very great. The second understatement is our sin is very bad. Again, that's not describing it well enough. We could use some different adjectives for that. I won't even try, but there are many more. Because in our day and time, we don't think of sin as being all that bad. They're just mistakes, miscues, peccadilloes. You know, we don't really see the the danger of it or the sinfulness of sin, to use a title of a Puritan book. We're not just sick with sin. We're dead in sin. Now think about it this way. When, when you're really sick and unhealthy, well, you, you follow a regimen to get better. You, uh, you take medicine. You, you might undergo therapy, physical therapy or other types of therapy. You, you would make sure you're getting proper nourishment and rest. And, and as you recover, you might even uh, uh, begin to exercise more to build up your strength and to get healthier. So when you're sick, if you're sick, you follow a certain uh, regimen prescribed, follow a set of activities, things that you do to make yourself better, to make yourself well and healthy. But if you're dead, you can't follow a regimen. A dead person can't take medicine. A dead person can't go to physical therapy. A dead person can't eat. A dead person can rest. That's about all they can do. But they're dead. See, sinners 
are spiritually dead. They're not sick. If we were only spiritually sick, then we could follow a regimen to improve our spiritual health. And many people try to do this. In fact, it seems to be the way human beings think. We might recognize that we have a sin problem, so we try to do better. We try to improve. We take the medicine of good works. We do the therapy of our own self-righteousness. But we're dead. We're not sick. In our efforts, if we engage in this kind of behavior, we're, are there, it's not doing anything for us except exacerbating the spiritual problem. Now, how do I know this is true, what I'm telling you, that we're, our sin problem is very bad? Well, if all you needed was to do better or try harder or to be more righteous, then why did Jesus have to die this cursed death on the cross? Wouldn't it be enough that he taught? But why did he have to die? Of course, he had to die because it's not just more teaching that we needed. We needed, we needed life. We needed someone to breathe life into our dead souls. And that's what Christ accomplished on the cross. Why did God make this definite plan to send his son to die when, when all he had to do was to send his son to teach us how to be better? You know, a lot of people say, oh, I believe Jesus was a great teacher. Yes, he's a great teacher, but that wasn't his primary mission. His primary mission was to die on the cross, to rescue spiritually dead sinners. His, his teaching must be seen in reference to this primary purpose. Paul says in Ephesians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, it's a free gift. It's not something that we earn or deserve. It's something that we receive from God by faith, by his grace. If you could earn it through your good deeds and self-improvement, then it wouldn't be by grace. And you wouldn't need Christ or the cross. John, back to First John 4, he goes on to say, in this is love, again, the love of God demonstrated for us, uh, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, a propitiation is a sacrifice of atonement. Christ sacrificed himself so that we could have uh, a relationship with God, atonement, at one minute. That's a word that I believe uh, either Wycliffe or Tyndale made up when he was translating into English. Uh, at one minute, to bring back together. We were separated from God, estranged, but through Christ's sacrifice, we can have uh, a relationship like we were designed to with God through Christ. He is the mediator between God and man. He redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us on the cross. So our sin needs a radical solution. And God, in his perfect, wonderful, definite plan, provided that for us in Christ. So those who embrace him in faith can say, along with the Apostle Paul, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How will we respond to this? You know, Peter's preaching to this great crowd, sharing about Christ and what he did for them. Now, these people who were in attendance were the ones who crucified him. They were responsible, even though it was God's definite plan, and this is uh, one of the mysteries of, uh, of how things work. God is sovereign, and he's in control of all things, but that does not mean that we're forced to do anything against our will. We're not robots, and it means that we as humans are responsible for our actions. We're held accountable for our actions. Peter's saying that. It was God's plan, but you are the ones, along with the Romans, those lawless men, you are the ones that put him to death. And they were cut to the heart, it tells us. And even though they rejected Christ to begin with, they say, what shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What a great exhortation for us today. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. By coming to Christ uh, and being a part of that plan that he's already executed on behalf of sinners such as we are. May God help us to see these things and embrace these things. Uh, And as we come to the table... Let us continue to remember as we participate uh, in the Lord's table uh, the body and blood of Christ and, and what he did and how he showed us the great love of God, the great solution for our problem. Let's pray together.